Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Miracle Larry podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, joined by best friend since kindergarten, Lawrence Kelly. Larry, how are you? I'm good, Jack. Actually, I'm a little under the weather today, but um, but all in all, I'm good. You know, uh, COVID is still out there and it's really mild. So uh, having a scratchy throat and, you know, you don't have to lose your smell and go into the ICU like you know who. Um, yeah. COVID is actually really mild these days. So not that I'm wishing that upon you again, but just reminding the audience that um, it's become much more of a mild thing. Today, a special episode. We have two unique individuals who were part of an amazing movement in the pandemic in New York City early, beginning in March and April. We're joined by a uh, physician assistant, Erica Krause, who comes to us from North Carolina, and um, uh, ER nurse uh, Scott Wood, who comes to us from Dallas, Texas. Larry, you know these people. Why? Uh, uh, well, Jack, this is going to be, for me, um, a, a pretty remarkable episode because uh, I haven't seen these two um, since they came to New York early. And uh, I we should be having dinner and a cocktail and sharing and catching up. So I guess we're going to be doing that a little bit today on the podcast. But uh, Erica and Scott were part of, as you said, Jack, that movement of uh, volunteer nurses and PAs and healthcare workers that came to New York early in the pandemic when they knew nothing um, of what they were getting themselves into. We all knew nothing about this, this virus. And uh, they came into the eye of the storm. So uh, I would like, Jack, I mean, if you can ask the first question, but I, I would just like to know what was in their head and motivated them early to even think about coming to New York from North Carolina and Texas. And uh, Erica, hi, Erica. Hi. It's been a while. Before you join, Erica said the one thing that's new about this is that she's never really heard you talk because she saw you in the in uh, just getting off the respirator and yeah. I whispered and mm -hmm. I, you know, right I had to uh yeah the uh Erica was I tricked when I first came to you did I have to use that that plastic piece you were I think you were tricked but you you weren't talking with the the plastic piece right you were just whisper. you had just come off the vent okay all right see so you were just I, just started breathing right, let me explain right, <laughs> jack let me explain real fast i started at mount sinai morningside uh the icu i went to palliative care at morningside i was transferred there i went from palliative care downtown to beth israel where i was literally the first patient and that's where these two happened to get assigned <laughs> when they came to New York was uh, was uh, Mount Sinai Beth Israel on East 16th Street. And uh, and and I'm who they ran into <laughs> or who had, had to care for, which is okay. quite a amazing. little bit a, a little me. bit of clarification. Also, Larry, um, 
was in Mount Sinai and was actually being moved as they were expanding their ICUs from one ICU to another ICU to another ICU, all on events, all unresponsive and on fentanyl and all these drugs and was a horrible mess. And kept they kept moving him. And this was very distressing to his family uh, and to me. Um, and I wasn't sure. And what, what we learned later is that they just couldn't take care of. They had even more critical people keep that kept coming in. And so they were moving things around. And at one point, Larry was, he had just opened his eyes, was still on a vent, meaning he was intubated on a mechanical ventilator and not at all out of the wood. And they transferred him downtown to another hospital. And it was a, it's called LTAC, a long-term, you know, um, a respiratory facility for people on ventilators, which they converted the Beth Israel Hospital to this function. And that's where he met Erica and Scott. Let's get into Eric and Scott, why would you sign up to go to New York City from North Carolina and from Tennessee into the middle of a war zone called the pandemic? Was it because the New York governor Cuomo was on the news with daily updates uh, and the New York mayor were asking for volunteers to come to New York to help out? Was that why you went or why did you go? Erica, why don't you go first? Okay, so a couple of reasons, um, the maybe simplest reason. So yes, I saw on TV, I knew what was going on in New York. I knew that it was absolutely insane, running rampant, you know, horrific. But here in North Carolina, we were barely seeing COVID. Um, you know, talking that late March, early April, barely seeing COVID, a few cases, um, you know, here and there. We weren't a shutdown and something crazy happened in the ER, which is that nobody came to the ER at all, uh, ever, hardly. Wow. Um, I don't know if they were scared of getting COVID. I don't know if, because people weren't out running errands and whatnot, they didn't pop into the ER to say, hey, but um, our volumes were horrendously low. Uh, like I said, I mean, obviously the super people who were sick, people were still having heart attacks, you know, things like that, they came. But generally speaking, I mean, our volumes just decreased dramatically. <laughs> so what that meant for me was, um, so I work for a staffing company that staffs emergency departments. I'm not a hospital employee. Um, and so my co company was sending out emails all the time. Um, what shifts do you want to come off this month? Uh, you know, leave early when you can call people, tell them to come in late. Um, how many shifts can we take you off this month? Um, and my answer was none uh, because, you know, I had bills to pay. So, but that, you know, it kept happening. We'd get sent home early. We'd ask be asked to come in late, you know, things like that. Um, and I was, you know, kind of getting nervous, you know, financially at that point anyway. Um, and then my company, so one of the, some head honcho at my company is friends or went to med school with some head honcho at Mount Sinai. And they started kind of talking, this took a couple of weeks, but they were like, Hey, you know, you're not using your people in New York or North Carolina. And I have your people in New York. Um, and so they kind of started working some things out and figuring out how this would work. And eventually my company kind of made this announcement of, you know, they asked number one, does anybody just want to furlough for just come off, stop working for a whole month? Um, and the benefit, they would pay your insurance. Um, the second option was if you want to stop working, you know, kind of indefinitely and go to New York um, with the caveat that they could call us back at any time. So I, I signed up for that, said that I would come off the schedule here and I would go to New York. Um, so number one, the reason was, you know, I needed a job. Um, 
But number two, it was hard for me to sit here and, you know, knowing that I'm not that I think anybody has any skills for COVID, but I'm a medical professional. I have an ability to treat people. I felt like I was like sitting on my thumbs and just watching, you know, the world blow up around me. Um, I felt like I couldn't just sit here and do nothing. I didn't know that I could do anything in New York, but I figured I need to at least try. Um, you know, and the last thing was when, you know, they were talking about, you know, we need, we need people in New York. Um, and you know, there was talks, talks, you know, even with my coworkers, people, you know, I'm not doing that. I would never go to New York. And, you know, uh, some people did have the, you know, some people did have fears about going to New York and would they come back? Um, I was single. I have no children. I felt like I was in a place to go. So I went. Jack, uh, one thing real fast. Erica is originally from Iceland. Yes, I'm from Long Island. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was that was too part of a another you know little personal connection too that I felt you know New York is my home state I lived there for 24 years um and that was part of too I felt like I couldn't sit here and watch New York specifically um crumble so to speak without going to do something for my state so I, I want to underscore something that at the time was the beginning of the shutdown there were a lot of jobs lost in all of society, mm -hmm. but especially in healthcare, a lot of clinics mm -hmm. closed and a lot of people were furloughed. And so while that might've been an impetus for Eric to make the jump, she was also had this amazing, you know, altruism and bravery to, you know, to jump in and want to be the right person in the, at the right time and make a difference. And Lord knows that that, that ended up being true. Um, th they did, pay her to go. They flew her there. They put her in a hotel um, and um, and then made her work like a dog and uh, manage people like Larry. Um, Scott, again, why did you make the jump? And uh, tell us how you got there. Uh, so what's funny is I was actually kind of in the process of changing jobs to begin with, like going from one, I'm an ER nurse by trade. Um, so I about the middle of March, we started getting like some sicker COVID patients. Um, I mean, their x-rays would change within an hour, hour and a half, like would come in talking. And then by an hour and a half in their treatment, they're like getting intubated just because their disease was progressing so quickly. And um, I had actually was about to start at another hospital and several friends of mine were like, oh, you know, we're traveling, like we're going to Illinois, we're going to different states. And I was like, okay, you know, so I kind of put some feelers out there. Um, and I had contacted a travel nurse company and they were like, oh, you know, we have some contracts in New York. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I don't mind going. I'm single. I don't have any children. So I was like, I don't, I mean, I have family, but that's really my only connections per se. And so I was like, sure, you know, like I'll go. I was like, I want to see what they are doing there that maybe we could be doing here to see if there's what's working there that I'm like, Hey, you know, maybe we should try this down here in Texas. Like, and healthcare does move quickly with like treatments sometimes, not always, but I was like, you know, if I could see things that they were doing there that were being successful for, for patients, I was 100% on board for that. And I was hoping I could bring some things back to Texas to assist with patient care here. 
so you drove yourself, right? You did not fly. They did not fly. I, I did. I rented a vehicle and drove up there. I think I drove over two days. That's a very long drive. Not going to lie. Right. Um, Tennessee's terrible to drive through. No offense to anybody <laughs> in Tennessee. <laughs> Just takes a hot minute to get through that state. Really does. So did you both bring things back? I mean, you were both there for um, what looked like at least two weeks, if not three weeks. Um, did you bring back knowledge and know-how and did that help you in when you return home to your next job scott um so it was like bits and pieces it was like kind of the modality of like medications that they were using just it was a little like little tidbits like that um by the time i had actually met larry he was already uh, off the vent um so i saw the kind of after effects and, and as an er nurse and probably as an er provider we don't see, after they leave the emergency room, we don't see patients again. So we don't ever know what happens to them, which is sometimes a struggle for people. Cause I mean, in an hour or two, like you can get to know somebody and like get to know their family. And it's like, you know, what happened? Like what happens to that person after they leave? And so I'm always kind of curious sometimes with some of my patients, just cause uh, there's lots of interesting disease processes out there. How do you know that it's really him? I mean, he doesn't sound the same. He doesn't look the same. <laughs> you know, he was a, a hairy, sweaty, frail mess. And we're not sure it's the same, Larry. How do you know it's the same? I watched his kids get married. His kids have oh. kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you I go. I him on Facebook the past three years. I may, may not remember him, but I remember Jackie yeah. and Jess. They look the same. Okay, we couldn't thought I could pull that off here. Um, <laughs> Erica, did you bring, did you bring stuff home that helped you? Jack, real fast. I I don't know if we did, and if we did, I apologize. But this is Erica Kraus and Scott Wood. I just wanted to give their full names. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Jack. I'm sorry. Erica. So you know when I when I came back, and when I came back, it did. It kind of was you know, good timing that I wasn't needed in New York anymore and things were ramping up here and I went right back to working, you know, full time. Um, and my boss, you know, will kind of make the joke of great, you know, we've got a COVID expert now, you know, COVID is, is running rampant here. People are super sick here. Um, you know, we've got an expert. Um, and I told him, um, the, what I felt, what I think I learned about COVID is, um, you know, like that show whose line is it anyway, where, you know, the rules are made up and points don't matter. That's how I felt about COVID. The rules were made up. We would one day be like, you know, great. We put everybody on this drug and everybody got better. And we're like, we did it, you know, hallelujah. We've got it. You know, put everybody on the drug the next day, that drug didn't work anymore. And then it was like, well, let's try this. And steroids was a, a, you know, a big thing at one point that we thought, you know, we were saving everybody with steroids and then it stopped working. Uh, I think the one thing I did take back was proning. They weren't doing a lot of proning um, here. And also I had half of the respiratory therapists I work with um, were pretty good. Well, actually probably most of the respiratory therapists, it was the other doctors. I had a hard time convincing or, or you know, trying to explain to people. The, I think the one thing I did learn is um, to not intubate everybody right away. Uh, I think that was one thing that we kind of saw was that a lot of, you know, in the beginning, it was like intubate everybody. Their sats are low. They're in respiratory distress. Let's intubate them. And then we found out they weren't coming off the vent. 
um, and learned that if you maybe hang out a little bit, you know, we came up with that term, that happy hypoxic, realized you don't have to tube everybody right away. And the ones you didn't tube did a little bit better. Um, so that was kind of, you know, one thing that I was trying to be the one to say, hold up, let's not, you know, I mean, that's, so that's what I do as the ER provider, right? I see low sats, I'm going to stick a tube down you. Um, and I had, you know, to be like, wait a second, let's, let's back up and tell my colleagues and the hospitalists and, you know, let's not do this. But I mean, like Scott said, I'll put the tube down you and then I'm out after that. Typically, let me, let me explain to the audience, happy hypoxic and low sats. <laughs> that means your oxygen levels are low, but it's not critical. The patient still is sustaining and that you, that you don't rush in and, and, and put a tube down their throat and put them on a ventilator. So, um, you know, you both got to New York um, around the same time and went to work at the LTAC unit in Beth Israel, met Larry. I think, Erica, you were there probably a week ahead of Scott. Um, so describe your um, first week with Larry Kelly. Do you remember much of, of that? Oh, yeah, I, re I remember. I mean, so I'm the one that did his admission to the LTAC. Um, <laughs> so the way, you know, it worked, like any other transfer, we had to have a physician acceptance into the LTAC. So um, the physician we worked with, and that changed on a daily basis, but the physician that we worked with that day got a call from a physician in the ICU, I think at Morningside, described the patient. She said, yes, we accept this patient. And then she presented the patient to the team of PAs and I got elected to, I was going to do the admission once this patient comes here. So that's where we got our information from was, you know, the physician in the ICU. Um, I got the rundown. I got everything I needed, his history, you know, things like that. Um, and that was typically how it went. And then we, you know, would do our admission from there. So not long after Larry actually arrived at the LTAC, I got a phone call and I don't remember if it was from a resident or the attending in the ICU, but it was somebody from Morningside called. And I thought, you know, that was weird because we had, I think we admitted maybe three or four patients that day. And so for, again, each patient, we got one phone call just to our attending physician. So they wanted to speak specifically to the provider that was taking care of Larry in the LTAC. And I thought, we've, we, you know, we already got a report. You already had an acceptance. He's here. What more, you know, you don't need anything else. And um, they called me, they said, I, I just want to run down, you know, kind of his course here and, and things like that. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I've gotten report. And uh, I want to say it was a few months ago. She said, no, I, I, you know, I was the one taking care of him here. You're the one taking care of him there. I want to speak to you. And she kind of hesitated for a second. And she said, there's something special about this one. She said, I want to make sure that I, you know, I really want you to understand what his course has been like here so that you have everything you need, you know, moving forward. Um, and he was the only patient that we got extra report on. Um, but, you know, they said, there's, there's something special about this patient. Um, so again, for me personally, now he was my first patient, like I said, and, and part of my report was, you know, this man, he's got two daughters, he's got a wife, they need to be updated. He's got this friend, Dr. Kush, he needs to be updated. You know, these are the people who are allowed to call this and that. And um, Larry, I think you're a couple years, maybe just a little bit older than my dad. Uh, Jess is maybe a little bit younger than me. But I, I have a sister named Jackie. And for some reason, the first thing that popped into my head was just my, my family. Um, my dad had been in a hospital in Virginia just a few days before I left. Um, actually, that was kind of my final, one of my final uh, contingencies was I'll leave only once I made sure my dad was out of the hospital, not with COVID, a heart issue, but 
still, you know, so this was kind of fresh. And I just, in my mind, it was, that could be my dad. These girls could be my sisters, you know, that could be my mom. And it just was just a little extra felt like this could be my family. And what would I want somebody to do for my family? Um, the people would make fun of me a lot. So, you know, in this LTAC, we had these glass doors. Uh, so I could see into the room and see the monitor, see the patient. Um, but typically we only, we, the, you know, as a PA, I would only go in the room once, maybe twice a shift. Um, whereas a nurse was in there, you know, pretty much all day long. Um, if not in and out, you know, we were gowning up, you know, seven layers of, of, you know, PPE and things like that. It was a huge process to go in and out of a room. So typically, you know, a nurse would go in or stay in for a long time. We would kind of stand at the door. We'd be writing on the doors and we'd be like miming to the nurses, like, you know, move this, check that, you know, can you give them this? Um, and they would find me just kind of standing outside Larry's door, just watching the monitor, looking at his vitals. Um, and people would say, oh, you know, she's checking on her dad again. You know, look, she's just watching her dad again. Um, so that was, you know, kind of from the beginning, I just felt this kind of personal connection. Um, and I was told he was special from the beginning. Yeah, so you're, yeah. the second, wait, Larry, you're the second person that said that to us and to me, that when I asked, tell, tell me about how you know Larry or, or how you met Larry, they all said, Jessica said just the same thing. You Oh, I know Larry Kelly. I admitted him to the blank. And I mean, that's just gives me chills just to hear that. Just chills. Jack, I, let me, I, I, where I do a lot of speaking informally and formally now. And uh, I always tell stories about these two that, uh, like I said, this is a strange episode because I have so many things to ask these two. But when they saw me, that was, that was in the, unit um mentally where i was um i had so many delusions down when i was with them um that uh, that's the place where i had the most i had to piece what was real what was not real whether i was alive whether i was not alive and uh let me tell a quick story with erica cuz how she's important to my family she is the first one that set up FaceTime with my family. And uh, that was my first connection to them. And the first time wasn't actually very pleasant for me because uh, it was my entire family on Zoom and I didn't even know what Zoom was. So there's eight faces like facing me. And it's the first time I ever saw something like that. And I, I thought maybe, maybe this is death. Maybe, maybe death is my family screaming at me it for eternity, you know. On a Zoom <laughs> so call. Yeah. so I got off that first call really fast. But uh that was Erica that set that up. And and Erica, I have to ask you one question and then we'll get to Scott. But my my first question, story I tell is I had just started speaking quietly, whispering, mm -hmm. raspy, and I had just started getting consciousness, uh, just, and I, you were there, and I said, uh, I asked you, I said, what day it was, and she had told me at the time, I believe it was the end of May, May 28th, 27th, something like that, and, and so in my mind, I had to, okay, now I have to do math, 
okay, I went in. This is the first time I realized how long I had been there. And uh, I was like, wow, okay, two months gone. Wow, geez, where'd they go? Um, and I said to Erica, I believe, ask me if this is true. I said, uh, do I still have COVID? And you said, no, you don't. You came down close to me and you whispered, no, you don't. And I said, I'm paralyzed, Jack, from the neck down or barely moving, barely speaking, barely thinking. I turned to her and I said, I kicked COVID's ass. And uh, you whispered to me, yes, you did, Mr. Kelly. Did, did that happen? Yeah, and but you're still missing. There's, the, there's one more line after that. So I think it must have been the end of either the end of April or the beginning of May. Well, there's a couple things you told me. Um, so that's the the first day, you know, when you came to the LTAC, that very first day, you were you had a fever. Um, you were weaning off the methadone at that point. So, you know, and that's what, you know, and we just didn't know you'd been sedated for so long and we didn't know what where your mental state was, where it would be. Uh, I think you followed some commands sometimes, you know, we just, we weren't sure at that point. Um, I did set but, up that. But you were, you were monitoring my cognition, right? Like that was your main concern. Like, right. Where yeah, I was and, mentally. And throughout the day, people right. were you know, you're, you're breathing, you're, you're. Right. Yeah. You know, chemistry. We were still. Uh, yeah, your brain. Yeah. yeah. Your brain was one of the biggest questions that we weren't sure how that was going to recover. Um, but I did, I, I did set up that zoom call. I remember, I know, see, you know, also in the LTAC, things were a little calmer. I think, um, most patients were fairly stable. It was, it was really a, a watch and wait place. We were just kind of waiting to see what, you know, every patient in there would do. So the biggest thing that we did a lot of times was just talking to families, updating families. You know, we had, I, I'd say versus like a traditional ICU, we had plenty of time to be talking to families, making phone calls, this and that. So when I called Jackie and Dawn for the first time, Jackie was like, listen, if it's not, you know, too big of a deal. She said, you know, they told us at the other place we could set up a Zoom meeting, but we never really had time. It's, if it's not a huge, I'm like, oh, we can do it today. You know, she was like, do you think in a few days we could? I said, we can do it today. You tell me when and we'll make this happen. You know, we have nothing nothing more to do here really than to set up zoom meetings. We have all that time. So we did set that up. Um, and so then, yes, when, when, you know, over a course of a few days, you know, your fever broke, you know, was, you know, weaning off the methadone, things like that. You started to respond more, follow commands more. And, um, I went in one day and they said, he's talking. So I had to, I had to go in. So I went in, um, you did ask me how long you'd been there. You told me you kicked COVID's ass. And then you pointed to kind of all the, this is where I said to, we had this conversation before about me being from Long Island. You pointed to, um, you had flowers and books and random gifts in your room. And you told me, you said, I have a lot of friends. I said, I see that clearly. And I think something had said on there, you were showing me kind of some different, this is from this and, you know, pointed at some flowers. And I think it said from Sayville class of something, you know, and I say, though, you said, yeah. You told me you were from Sayville and I told you I was from Islip. Um, and then, you know, I don't remember which point in the conversation, but this part that stuck out to me, you know, and in this whole, you just woke up, you know, been here forever, kind of figuring out who you are, what you are. You looked at me and you said, I need a massage. No, I did not. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you said, I need a massage. You went right to HR, okay? And, I said, uh, no, no, no. 
God, I didn't ask you that too. I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> nope, nope, you didn't ask. I took it as you meant like you needed to go to, you wanted to get out of there, go to a massage place, you know, have a, an actual massage therapist. That's oh, how I took Eric, it. But, you know, kind of, I'm stiff. I'm, oh, everything you're saying is coming back to me in pieces. I, I, I remember saying, I remember thinking, my God, I've told this late, later that uh, I wasn't supposed to be in the hospital. I was just coming for a massage. <laughs> that was one of my delusions that, you know, I, I don't know what happened to me here. I just came in for a massage. That was delusional <laughs> talk. You'll have to... Yeah. It wasn't harassment. Many no, times. no, no. No, I took it as you wanted to be discharged so you could go to get a massage. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm yeah. supposed to be <laughs> That's crazy. I remember. But it was now, it was interesting but, to me. I was like, well, I guess someone who's been laying in bed for 51 days. I mean, Eric, the last question. I I had a beard at that point and I was really concerned about a razor at my home. Mm -hmm. So remember that I wanted this single edge. And I remember you standing by the bed and you were holding, and I'm telling Dawn where the single edge razor is. It's on the shelf in the bathroom. It's the gift from my son-in-law. And you went, well, I guess the cognition's okay. Is Did that happen? Or did I make that up to it? That, I don't remember exactly, but that sounds like something I would say. I feel like, I don't, I don't remember what it was about, but I feel like I remember talking to Dawn and saying something like there was something that you had said that I was like yep his mental state is fine you know, you were, <laughs> said something that just seemed like a normal yeah a normal conversation so Scott yeah. you you came in the picture what sounds like maybe a week or so later um when you got him um was he intubated was he on an endotracheal tube or or not so we actually had a trach um with the little cover. So he was able to speak. It was still kind of whispers. What's right. odd about that is like, it seems like from one week it was whispers and the next week, like his voice was like much stronger. Like you would better hear him. just sometimes I have issues hearing and uh, they had machines in there to do negative pressure. So it was very loud in those rooms mm -hmm. at all times. Right. And so I remember that, like the first couple of times I'd seen him, like you really had to like lean into him, kind of listen to what he was whispering. But then it's like his voice was getting a little bit stronger every time I would see him. And I'm like, okay, good, good. He's improving. Like this is substantial improvement. And... So he didn't ask you for a massage. What did he ask you for? <laughs> <laughs> so I believe it was my very last day. Oh, worry. And I think he was. Can, can I tell that story, Scott? Hold on. Before, before you jump to your last thing, and Erica, don't, don't be offended by this because this is just my memory. I looked at Scott Wood, that little red button that I had, I kept seeing staff walk past the door. I would press that button. No one came to help me. That's just what I remember. I'm not saying it's fact. I'm saying that. But Scott Every time I pressed that red button, he came into my room. And I, so real fast. And Scott, I think, <laughs> Scott, I'm gonna, I, this is a story I tell about you all the time. <clears throat> I was just starting to speak. I hadn't eaten anything. 
in months. And I still wasn't allowed to. My speech therapist, I wasn't allowed to put anything in my mouth. Scott didn't know this. Um, so I had said to Scott when he came in, I said, you know, I said, Scott, uh, I need some Italian ice. And Scott went, what's that? And I remember saying, where are He's you from? He's not from New York. Where are you from? He goes, Texas. I went, what kind of state is that? They don't know what Italian ice is. I said, what kind of state? Is that true, Scott? That's right. So, so, so I described it to Scott. I said, Scott, you got to go out there and find the deli. I said, it's, it's in little yellow cups. It's called Marino's. I said, please go get me some Italian ice. No, not thinking that he was. This man comes back with a, and I said, I like rainbow. I like cherry. And I like, and I like watermelon. I said, he came back with a case of Marino's Italian ice, rainbow, cherry and watermelon he went outside the hospital and and i wasn't allowed to eat anything and i looked at him tentatively like i i, I knew he was going to say no that i was just going to stare at it i said can i have one and like sheepishly and he said yeah sure and he took one out he fed me the whole thing i said can i have another one and he he, he took another one out. he said jack all right. If you've ever been on a desert island starving, which is sort of what I was, to this day, that Italian ice was the greatest thing I put in my mouth in my life. It was so delicious. Scott, Ed, you did that. And, uh, and then he tells me, He's leaving, you know. The uh, well, what he what he didn't tell you, Larry, is that they they were sending him to Rikers Island for the crimes he committed while working as a. <laughs> you know that's why he had to make the quick exit. <laughs> I, I did but, actually get permission. I promise, I got permission first. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> you did. Oh yeah, <laughs> you did. You know, um, I I know. Back at the old place, I asked for ice chips and they wouldn't give me any. And I thought that my speech therapist was, you know, a, a sadist. You know, I, I I was looking at her like ice chips. What the hell is wrong with this woman? I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a dying, starving man here and they won't give me ice chips. So when Scott gave me the Italian ice, I know he's thinking, this poor man wants an Italian ice. <laughs> you know, who am I to deny this? But anyway, so Scott, you can talk about the last day. You can go ahead. Um, so I had actually gotten permission because uh, I think I had actually given him a couple of like ice chips ahead of time. And I was like, you know, he's tolerating his secretions. Like he's not like coughing. He's not gagging on anything like that. And I was like, it's my last day. Is there any way possible that I can get this man some Italian ice? And they gave me permission. So I actually had ordered a couple of boxes just because I'm not from New York. I don't know where anything is. So I actually had it delivered to the hospital, went downstairs, got all three boxes, like put his patient labels on there, put them in the freezer. Cause I was like, these are Mr. Kelly's. Nobody else needs to eat them like at all. I was like, they belong to him. And, but they were ever so gracious as to let me 
get them for you. So I was glad I was able to actually provide, like, it may, because I do actually talk about you with other patients, and I'm like, not like you, like your name or anything like that, but I talk about, I'm like, it's something small, but that may mean the world to somebody. It may mean, like, insignificant to somebody, but something just a little bit may go a million miles for that person. And it's just little things. Scott, but when you told me you were transferring, you were going to Boston and you came in, um, did I, I cried, didn't I? We shared like, I I couldn't believe you were leaving because I your, my perception of you was the only one that took care of my needs. Not Erica, you were gone by this I was point. gone, yeah. I'm I know, you were gone. <laughs> but Scott was the only one that, and he's looking at me saying he's leaving me. And I'm like, no, you, no, you can't. I, I, I want to talk to somebody. There's somebody I have to talk to. Like, I, I was so dependent on Scott that uh, it was devastating. And the irony was I got transferred that evening. I got, that's when I went to the rehab center and I demanded to take my case of Italian ice and the nurses there said, oh, it'll melt. You can't take that. It'll melt. I said, what do you mean it'll melt? What do you mean it'll melt? So so they wound up getting that case of Italian ice anyway, because they wouldn't let me put it on the bottom of the cart when they were taking it to rehab. But, but. And Scott, I, I'm I'm gonna share something. And I just and I don't do it for ego. I did you pay me a really big compliment before you left and say, and tell me if this I made this up because it's possible, you know, the the uh um but you said, Mr. Kelly, I, I've been doing my job for eight and a half years. And you're one of my favorite patients. Did you say that to me before you left? What's funny is I was like, I remember like talking to you, like in that instance, and I want to say it was something along those lines because I was like, it's different for your nurses just because we have our patients for an hour or two. We don't see them that much. But when you're in that kind of setting that you were in, like you're with that patient for 12 hours a day. And I was like, just like interacting with you, just talking with you just i was like i don't know you're just i was like you're still to this day and i said to get the f out of here and you said no seriously (laughs) i said get the f out of here i said i said he said no seriously but my point is whether you meant it or not it was a wonderful thing to say to somebody who is where i was at that point um so I'm just, like you said, little things matter. I, like it, it, it doesn't matter to me that I was your favorite patient. What matters is you said it and made me feel like I was, and that's really important. That's all. Yeah. Oh, I want I want to ask you both as you good Scott. You want to say something? Good. Oh, uh, so I will say I do mean it because after I left, like I consistently thought about you. Like, and what's funny is I had actually messaged your wife on Facebook and I was like I want to know what happens to Larry because I was like I got like so 
like interested just in your case. But he gave me a massage. No, he gave me Italian ice. I didn't do that. Your memory's not good. I want to ask you both, as you did leave Larry and go on to your next assignment, you must have told a story about Larry to someone else. What, you know, so does anything come to mind, Scott, about what you told maybe another nurse or another, again, you don't have to worry about HIPAA here. Larry signed all the papers. You're, you're absolved of any, any crimes, but is there another, is there something you told another healthcare person or family member about? I had this patient. So, I mean, so what's funny is even like, multiple years after I still talk about Larry like still taking care of Larry and just like it was such it was just such an impactful time as well as taking care of him was just impactful was to myself um, COVID. literally um and I do remember telling him because he was like he was telling me he was like you know I've lost so much weight he's like I just he's like I feel like 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 skinny now just he was like I've lost so much weight he was like and I just felt so weak and I said this is gonna sound really stupid and I want you to just sit there and just pump your feet in the bed I know it sounds dumb but just do it I said because you're gonna get those muscles moving in I said it's not gonna be an instant thing obviously I was like but you know you're gonna have to kind of like build yourself back up um and I was like and I just I do remember like I told him I was like just sit there and pump your feet sit there and pump them it's like I know it may seem insignificant now but I was like you know it was just like little things. Uh, just he would like ask something or tell me something, and I'm like, oh, you know, like, let's try this, let's try this. But, but Scott and Erica, you got to look at my point of view. It's a nothing is insignificant to me. Everything, I'm I'm still here, and uh, every all those little things are connected to to and you know. COVID was historical and you were, you were in the heart of it in the epicenter in New York. And uh, I don't, I, I think it's stuff we'll never forget. We'll move on, but we'll, we'll never forget. And, uh, you know, Eric, I, 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 I saw you on Facebook referred to me as a, my miracle, Larry, my miracle. Larry. I do. See, said, I call you my favorite patient, my miracle, Larry. Maybe I didn't say it to your face. I think I only got to speak to you like twice, but on, so the other thing, you know, you talk about uh, speaking of Facebook and stuff. So while this was one of the hardest things for me being in New York, I've spent, you know, 12 hours a day standing outside your door and Jack, I promise I'll answer your question, but this, let me get to this part first. You know, I spent 12 hours a day standing outside your door, watching you, um, you know, just watching you on the phone with Don, on the phone with Jackie, on the phone with Jess, on the phone with Jack, you know, and, you know, listening to your family talk about you, listening to your family cry, listening to your family ask me, you know, is he going to be okay? What's going to happen? What's, you know, and, and always, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but just to tell them that, you know, as I said, my favorite line from the notebook is science only goes so far, then comes God. That's how I felt the whole time I was there with you. And, and you know, I didn't know what I was doing other than standing outside your door and just hoping for a miracle and praying for a miracle. But then I would go back to the hotel at night and I would sit there and I would scroll through Facebook and um, my, I would say my acquaintances on Facebook, a lot of people in North Carolina, like I said, you know, nothing was happening here, which is one of the reasons why I left and went to New York. I was watching post after post after post 
this is a hoax. COVID is a joke. Nobody's dying. Nobody's even sick. It's just the flu. It doesn't exist. You know, every myth, every, you know, thing. And it, and I would comment and like to the, I would have to take my phone for myself. Like you can't, it would, I mean, I had like rage inside of me over this and I would write, you know, I have a woman you could speak to. I have a daughter you can speak to, you know, I have a wife you can speak to. Why don't you tell, you know, you know, of course never use names, but just said, you know, I know a family you can speak to if you don't believe this is real, you know, that nobody's dying, nobody's hurt. This is affecting nobody. It's all it's doing is the government's trying to be in control. And, and I, um, I saw, you know, I guess a couple months ago, it, it popped up in my Facebook memories that, you know, I said something about, you know, meanwhile, my, or something about my favorite patient's family is, you know, waiting just to see if he's ever going to wake up or, or walk out of here or, you know, but, you know, but you also say it's fake, you know, like I've got some people you can speak to if, if you want to know how real it is. It's infuriating. Um, it's infuriating. Absolutely. It's yeah. A, yeah. That's, but, and that's then, what so, I speak about. I, I, you know, Jack knows I sort of uh, look at myself as uh, the the Ellie Wiesel of COVID. Uh, that uh, I, I don't want people to wallow in it, but I don't want people to forget about it. It's you know there there are 1.2 million Americans who died. That's families. Right. That's families mm-hmm. of someone. Who, I I speak. I think this it's not again. It, none of this is ego, but I speak for a. Uh, for the dead, I, I want people to remember that I'm fortunate, but I I was almost just a statistic in a history book down the road. Um, yeah. Anyway, but we did go through something historic. Go ahead, Scott. So uh, that is part of the that is part of the stories though I tell about Larry. You know, the biggest thing is is like I said that science only only goes so far, and then comes God. Um, because, you know, I don't, I don't know people. Um, I actually maybe six months ago was working in the ER, got a phone call. Our secretary said, Hey, you have a phone call. I said, who is it? She said, some lady who's looking for you specifically. I said, a a patient. She said, no, she's not a patient. She's in, and she named another state. Well, who is she and what does she want? You know, working in an ER, I'm busy. But she said, well, she found you, um, online. She found an article that you're mentioned in. And she said that her mother is on a ventilator, sick with COVID, and she wants to know what did you do to get that man off a ventilator? Because she she needs the miracle cure, you know, whatever the miracle cure was, she wants to know. And I had to tell them that I, I have nothing. There was nothing. There's nothing I did. There's nothing. I mean, everything just, you know, especially in those days was just, it was a miracle and that's all it was. That there was nothing that you know I did that that got him off the ventilator. It's everything you did. Think about it. It's what everything you did, everything Scott did, everything you know the orderlies were doing. It's it was this amazing combined effort that was science driven, you know, and inspired by you know an unwillingness to give in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, not every there weren't a lot of wins, but. There were many like Larry, and not enough. But that still is it's it's really is everything that you did, and that's part of the miracle. It really, well, that's, I, I I do want to say to both of you that uh, even with Jessica Montanaro and everybody who attended me, um, in my eyes, 
if if I'm the only reason you went to New York and I'm alive with all the tragedy, um, it's to me it was totally worth it to come to New York. So you you well, it was I'm worth eternally it. grateful to both of you. Um, what what you did is uh. I, what, what you did is so courageous. I just, I don't know if I would have ever done that. I don't know if I would have come right into the eye of the storm. And uh, not knowing how this was transmitted, what it actually did. And and Erica, I'm right with you. I, You know, the people that, that minimize COVID or, you know, I don't even want to get into it. Dr. Fauci in jail. I just, my head explodes. <laughs> my head explodes. You know, it's, uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm right with you. The, uh, you know, and that's what you have to sit back and take right. comfort in that we know. They're lucky they didn't see it. Yeah. Right. So we should end right there because it's such a good, a good ending. But I got to ask one more question of both of you. Um, you were both the angels of mercy going into the eye of the storm it was, you had to leave your shift and go back to your hotel at night. What was New York City like for you going, you know, at that time? Was it, you know, the picture well, that- I did want to, I wanted to ask that too. Good, Jack. Good the, question. The picture that was painted <laughs> was a really dark and dank thing, except for the, you know, the pots banging at 6 p.m. But do you remember anything, Scott, about New York City as you went home that night? So I, my hotel was actually near Times Square. Like it was dead. Like there was nobody out on the streets. And I think about the only people that I did see were homeless or like mental illness folks. And um, because I did get yelled at several times because I would take the subway to the hospital. So um, there was some interesting times coming home because it was dark and I was like, Oh, I don't want to die here. Not gonna lie. <laughs> don't want to get like stabbed, anything crazy like that. But uh I was, I mean, I was always safe, but uh it was just oh, it was wow. eerie. It was almost like being like in a zombie apocalypse because there's nobody out on the streets and it's just weird. It's weird for New York. It, it was very weird, <laughs> And there's a picture, Jack, of Erica on Facebook. I think she took it when she was leaving New York, but Times Square, empty. She's lying in the middle of the road. Oh. On Broadway. It's just her lying in the middle of the road in this Times Square view down for half a mile. Um, no one, not a soul. And it's a great, great shot. It's a great, great shot. And I look at it, it just, uh, it's it's an iconic shot. Actually. Every Long Island kid has always wanted to be in Times Square in the middle of the road like that, except we yeah. <laughs> at New Year's Eve, surrounded by 8 million people who were drunk. Right, right. Oh my God. Scott, were you born yeah. and raised in Texas, by the way? Were you born so, and raised in Texas? Yep, been here all my life. Yeah. Eric, what do you remember? Are you okay? Is Scott a Cowboys fan? This is important. I don't watch football. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> watch the boat right there, Scott. Good move. Um, yeah. So, you know, growing up on Long Island, I've been to the city plenty of times. Uh, I, you know, I don't even, I don't like going anymore. You know, um, it's, that was, you know, the first thing on the plane. Uh, I think I flew into JFK from 
I went from Raleigh to Atlanta, from Atlanta to JFK. They had to redistribute us. There was like seven of us on the plane and they had to redistribute us, put us in certain spots to make the, you know, weight even out because there was so little weight on the plane. That was insane. But, you know, then mm. being in the car from the car airport to the hotel, I took so many pictures. Just my hotel was in Times Square as well. And just, just looking out the window, it was a Thursday night. And I just remember thinking, I, I just I couldn't believe it. Same thing the next morning. Um, it might have been a Wednesday night and Thursday morning, you know, seven o'clock Thursday morning, not a car in Times Square. I've never, never have I ever. And and I mean, like Scott said, I mean, that's exactly what I thought. It was creepy. Uh, it was eerie. It was like a zombie apocalypse, a rapture. Mm. It was an odd, odd feeling. Um, <laughs> I will say, though, I did. I did enjoy as much as I say I, I, I hate New York City. Um, I would walk a lot. And I had a, a couple of other friends that I met at the Atlantic Airport, actually. I hate New York City. I don't want to go there. I don't want to walk around and all the people. And it's first off, I just want to let you know my daughters were never allowed to use that word growing up. So you know, uh, <laughs> save your hate. For I somebody. strongly dislike. Save your hate for somebody who's trying to kill you. Like, yeah. like hate COVID. That's good. Okay. Yeah. You know. Yes. I don't. Don't enjoy hate my city. Don't hate my. I city. know. I I don't enjoy going to New York City. I will be there next year. By the way, though, we're planning a trip for next year. I always come up with some you know country friend here who needs me to take him to new york city so yeah, next yeah. year it'll be my boyfriend and um but i did enjoy it you know we'd have one day off or so uh and you know we would do things like delis were open a delis scott you would know if, if we were there at the same time i brought in bagels every morning um i had to stop at the bagel store around the corner i brought in bagels for the whole whole unit every morning he doesn't know um, italian ice you think he knows bagels no no <laughs> but we would you know but we would go to a deli uh, get a sandwich go to a park um you know go sit at the park so it actually you know i enjoyed new york city a whole lot better with nobody in it um but it still was was you'll creepy. never get that again anyway. no never i hope yeah erica real fast my, my my daughter Jackie had to get out and she moved to Buffalo. So my wife drove up with her and left the car there with Jackie and took a plane back. And the plane she took back, she was the only passenger on the wow. entire plane. And that's that's the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. She's she's flying, she's the only passenger flying back from Buffalo on the plane when she took wow. Jackie up in the heart of anyway. I just yeah. It reminds me yeah. Of the airports, yeah, the airports were creepy. The plane, yeah, eerie, eerie. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I want to thank Erica Krauss and Scott Wood for this fabulous reunion um, and discussion of, of of their view of the Miracolari story. This has been really wonderful. Thank Can you. Can I both. say one thing, Jim? Yeah, please, Larry, close it. When, when you two, please. Um, Let's get together and the three of us. You got to come into the city and let me take you out to dinner. <laughs> but the, the next time you're both coming in at the same time, let's keep in touch. There is Facebook. And uh, yeah. because we, I just scratched the surface of stuff I want to talk to you two about. So the uh, anyway, anyway, thank you both. Thank you both for doing this. God bless you. Stay healthy. Stay young. Stay happy. And uh, don't hate my city, Erica. <laughs> I won't. I'll I'll come back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jack. Bye all. Thank you, Jack. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you.